Two things before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount for today. I do want to follow up with Ashley's announcement about Gospel Sunday and the Northside Music Fest next weekend. Hear me on this. Don't take next Sunday off, okay? I, I know it's different. Um, we're going to do some special things through our online streaming, but we need your presence here. I don't know if we fully recognize the significance of our community being willing to partner with us for this Northside Music Fest. Um, it speaks a lot to the history of this church, to um, our relationship with the community. I know that Friday and Saturday there's going to be a lot of music, uh, most of it, that doesn't glorify God. But the fact that they would want a church to be a part of that festival and to give us a day where we can glorify the God who created all music and for us to be able to sing and wrap up that festival glorifying him is no small thing. And so I think I heard it preached a couple weeks ago that we're to be salt and light. This is an opportunity for us to do that. It's an opportunity for us to get out of these four walls to go into our community. And so we need your presence. I need your joy. I need, you're a friendly church. I need your smile. I need us not to bring a couple lawn chairs and grab food and sit down and just be spectators, but to come and to engage with our community in meaningful ways. And so don't ever minimize um, your presence and what that means here next Sunday. It's from 10 to 2. The second thing is this, that following Monday, a week from tomorrow, I am going to begin a, a four-week sabbatical. I do that every year. If you're fairly new and you're wondering why or what that is, let me quickly explain. Um, three and a half years ago when I um, became pastor here, my predecessor before me, Pastor Rock, who was here for 36 years, the elders insisted that he would always take a four-week sabbatical during the summer. And when they hired me, um, one of our elders, Bruce Grover, is right here. He can attest if you have questions. You can ask him. Uh, they insisted that I do the same thing. And so you're not going to see me for four consecutive weekends after Gospel Fest. I'll be there for that. And that's why. Um, I'm grateful that we have great staff. I think it's a very healthy thing. The, um, no church should be built around one person or one personality. Um, so I just don't want any rumors to fly. If you're wondering where I am, that's, that's there. I'm going to take a little time with my family. I'm going to pray, study, discern what God has for us for the rest of this year and even into next year. And uh, I'm just very grateful for that time. Let me tell you, I, I love our church. And um, despite what some may say, pastors do work more than one day a week. And... Um, being in an urban context and having a diverse congregation like this, it can take a toll on you physically, mentally, and emotionally. While I love what I do, I'm very grateful um, to our leadership for giving me that break. So I covet your prayers um, during that time. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We're going to read God's word aloud together. We are continuing to work our way through this Sermon on the Mount. And this section of passage that we're going to read here in just a moment are six statements from Jesus. They're probably familiar, and there's one repeating phrase that Jesus says throughout each of those six statements, and he says this, you have heard it said, but I say. Now, I've edited this down to these six statements, so there's some scripture that happens in between them, but for time's sake um, and for the purpose of this message, let's read this, these six statements together. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, 
And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Lord Jesus, we need you after reading that. If that was a test, all of us would fail miserably. So now as we look to these words and your intention and the implication it has for us, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, we want you to challenge our thinking today, but if it just moves to knowledge and doesn't move to application, we've lost it. So help us understand and do the transformational work that is needed in our hearts. In your name, amen. You may be seated. It's important for us to remember that while we're taking 12 weeks to go through this sermon, this was one sermon altogether that Jesus gave. So while we're doing it week by week, make sure that you don't miss the connection that happens week by week. All of this, these six statements, these really difficult antithesis statements, if you will, they all come on the, on the heels of one significant statement that Jesus made. Pastor Trey talked about this last week. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All of these six statements hang on this last statement that Trey covered last week. And what we need to recognize is that Jesus is elevating and he's intensifying what the people of his time, those listening to the sermon, what they understood to be righteous living. You see, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people in society at that time, they would have looked at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, how they lived as the bar for what it means to be a righteous person. But as we now know that Jesus was addressing, the Pharisees, while it looked like they were living righteous lives, they were so focused on the external that they were ignoring the internal of their hearts. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were more concerned about appearance than they were what was happening within their own heart. And for you and I today, as it was then, Jesus always targets our heart. 
He always targets our motives. He is pushing us to examine the inside, the reasons why we do what we do. It's not that our behavior doesn't matter. It does, it's not that our actions don't matter. They absolutely do. But doing the right thing for the wrong reasons doesn't fly with Jesus. As Pastor Trey so powerfully communicated last week, righteousness is not about behavior modification. It's really about heart transformation. This is what the Pharisees were missing, and it's what we have to understand today. By living with the right intentions, the right motives, those who live in the kingdom of God will live a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. So here in these six statements, Jesus is now going to apply righteousness to six specific areas of our everyday life. He's going to demonstrate what true righteousness should look like Monday through Friday, not just on Sunday morning when we're singing and looking all pretty and gathering together. He wants to demonstrate, no, this is how righteousness plays out on Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. and on Friday night at 9 o'clock. Here are the six areas of our life that Jesus addresses. Anger, lust, marriage, being trustworthy, retaliation, and dealing with enemies. This is personal application straight from Jesus. I mean, up to this point in the series, and we've preached about it, we talked about what it means to be blessed, to live the blessed life. We talked about salt and light. Jesus talked about righteousness and calling us to a standard of righteousness that goes beyond the Pharisees. This now is practical. And some of us may have asked, well, what does that look like on Wednesday morning for me? What does this look like, this Sermon on the Mount? Jesus answers it by addressing these six areas in our personal life. And what he's saying is, as we just read and as you know, he said in each of those statements, you have heard it said... But I tell you this, and here's what he means by that. This is what you thought righteousness looked like, but you've missed the point. You thought righteousness was just, well, you didn't kill nobody. But I want to go deeper than that. You thought righteousness was, well, you just stay married. But I want to go deeper than that. You thought righteousness was, well, I haven't committed adultery. But Jesus wants to go deeper with that, and he's going to with us today. You see, Jesus desires to make us into a different kind of people. We should be a community that stands in complete contrast to the ways of this world. He's calling us to be a people of his kingdom. A people that see things differently, that value things differently, that live differently. Remember, this is a manifesto of the kingdom of God. And we need to be different than the kingdom of this world. And here is what he is wanting us to realize in six, of these each, in six of these areas of our life. Public performance is easier than private piety. It's easy for most of us not to murder somebody. <laughs> but it's a lot harder when you're dealing with the anger in your heart. There are some here today, well, I haven't cheated on my wife, but you're dealing with lust and the privacy of your heart. Public performance is easy. It's the private piety of your heart that Jesus wants to address. So today, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at what Jesus says about five 
of these six personal and practical areas of our life. In two weeks after Gospel Fest, Pastor Elizabeth will be here and she's going to address dealing with our enemies. That one needed a whole weekend just to itself. So I'm only covering the first five. Here's the first one Jesus deals with in our life. He deals with anger. He said, you have heard it said that to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. How many of you have ever been angry? Now, don't lie. You're in church, for goodness sake. You can't lie. Every person's hand should be up. I'm not sure if my wife is in the service, but she'll tell you I get hangry. So all of us have to deal with it. But what does Jesus mean by that? Well, all of us, you know, we all recognize that murder is bad and hopefully none of us will ever come close to taking someone's life. But Jesus wants to go to the root of the problem of murder. He wants to go to its source. And what's the source? It's anger. You see, murder is the last stop on the train of anger. And this is so practical for you and I. It's so practical for our current day as we see violence increasing all around us in our community, in our city, and in our world. Jesus is teaching us a very powerful and practical lesson here. He's saying if you want to address violence, you must learn to deal with anger. If you want to see violence change, you have to deal with anger in the heart. Jesus even goes on further and he says, he addresses name calling. He says, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of fire of hell. Now we read that and go, I mean, calling somebody a fool ain't that bad, right? Like call somebody a fool, no one's getting offended. They may roll their eyes at you. But understand in the day of Jesus, calling somebody a fool was like calling somebody, you're a beep, you fill in the blank. It was that bad. Well, why? Here's why that matters. Anger, when we project anger, and when we lower ourselves to name-calling, what that does is it robs the dignity from other people. It robs the dignity of human beings that are created in the very image of God. So when we project anger on someone, when we resort to name-calling, we are robbing the dignity and honor of a person that's created in God's image. What are we to do then when we experience anger? How are we to deal with it? Jesus reveals it in verse 23. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. For us, it's hard to relate to this because we don't line up outside the church and bring sacrifices to the altar. But if Jesus was here today, he might say this. As you go to church and you park your car and you come in and the music starts playing and Pastor Christian asks you to stand and begin singing and lifting your hands. If in that moment you remember that someone has a problem with you, put your hands down, go grab that person, go out to the lobby and resolve it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying his reconciliation is so important, it's worthy of interrupting your worship. And notice he said, he didn't say if you had a problem with somebody. He said, if you know somebody has a problem with you. Jesus' followers are to seek reconciliation. We should be people who pursue peace. The fact is, Christians should be the very first people to resolve conflict. Not to ignore it, not to shy away from it, not to brush it under a rug. 
Jesus followers should be known for talking to people, not about people. Could you imagine a community? Could you imagine a family, a group of people that were so passionate about resolving conflict that they didn't ignore it? That when they knew somebody was offended by them, that they pursued peace in every conversation? That's what Jesus is calling to. The second area of our life Jesus addresses is lust. He said, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think it's true to say that married men and women don't begin their marriage on the plan to commit adultery. You don't go from zero to adultery. And just as murder is the last stop on the train of anger, so too adultery is the last stop on the train of lust. Again, Jesus wants to go to the root of the problem. It's not that he's addressing adultery. He's going deeper than that. What causes that? And that is lust in our heart. So why is lust bad? The most significant is that it objectifies people. Once again, it dishonors it dehumanizes. It objectifies a, very, a person that is created in the very image of God. And what does Jesus say? How are we to address it when we have lust in our heart? He says, well, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown in hell. What? What does he mean by that? Like, seriously. If a woman or a man walks by and you look at them and you don't have a good thought, are you seriously supposed to like gouge out your eye? Are you seriously supposed to cut off your hand? No, Jesus is not advocating physical self-mutilation. What is he doing then? Why is he saying this? It's hyperbole. Jesus is pointing out the absurdity of external solutions. Just because you cut out your eye doesn't mean that's going to stop the lust in your heart. He wants to address the root of the problem. He's calling us to look inward and to seek transformation from the inside out. He wants us to take our sin seriously. Even sin that you think no one knows about. It's interesting that Jesus connects lust with hell. It wages war on your very soul. Then Jesus moves to marriage. When he says anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As we look at this and what Jesus means in addressing divorce and specifically the sanctity of marriage. We have to understand the cultural context of the day. I think we can agree that we live in a culture where the sanctity of marriage, the importance of marriage, the value of marriage is being decreased. It was in the time of Jesus as well. You see, there were several schools of thought on different aspects of life. Jesus was a rabbi and there were other rabbis and these rabbis had school. There was a school of thought in some rabbis that were giving men permission to divorce their wives over silly things. This is going to sound funny, but even if a spouse was to burn a meal, there was some school of thought that that man had the right to divorce his wife. Ladies are thankful for that. <laughs> men, maybe you should cook dinner. So, sanctity of marriage was even being minimized in the time of Jesus. 
there was, a, there was a move in our culture, and it was happening in the time of Jesus, that treated marriage flippantly. Even some that treat divorce flippantly. Even today, divorce is now so common and acceptable, even in the church and in the body of Christ, that Jesus' followers often don't recognize its significance or the damage that it causes. And here in this text, it's not so much about Jesus laying ground rules for divorce as he is challenging his followers to hold a higher view of marriage. His followers should value, protect, and promote the covenant of marriage as defined by the Bible. God's plan and the Bible's plan for marriage has always been and forever will be, it is one man, one woman, together for a lifetime. Last weekend, I wasn't here because I was marrying a, a young couple, a family friend of ours, and I officiated their wedding. And every time I marry someone, I always want to make sure that I differentiate between commitment and covenant. Here's what I mean by that, and here's why it's important. It's a great illustration for the kingdom of God, this kingdom manifesto versus the kingdom of this world. Marriage in the kingdom of this world and in our current society, marriage is seen through a lens of commitment. Commitment meaning that a commitment is a two-way contract between two or more parties predicated on performance. If those of you who are a business person, you sign a contract with somebody and that person doesn't live up to what's written in that contract or the expectation, you can break that contract. Many in our world and society view marriage as that. You stand on your wedding day and you've been dating for two or three years, whatever it is, your expectations are high. Next thing you know, you're married, you move in together and you go, whoa, wait a second, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't know she did that. I didn't know he did that. They're not living up to their commitment. So we break that commitment. That is looking through marriage in the lens of a commitment. That's the ways of the kingdom of this world. But for us as Christians, as Christ followers, God has called our marriages to be viewed through a covenant. What's the difference? A covenant is a one-way promise between two or more parties that's predicated on the principles bound by sacrifice. An unwritten conviction that I will do this regardless of whether or not you do that. A covenant is ultimately giving something more than it is required. A covenant played out in marriage is, man, I don't know, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know you had those quirks. I didn't know you were good at this or you weren't good at that. But I stood before God and I made a covenant. And just as Christ is faithful to me, even through my, my sin and my mistakes, I am faithful to you. That's the difference between a covenant how marriages should be in the kingdom of God versus a commitment in the kingdom of this world. <laughs> Couples that follow Jesus should have marriages that represent covenants, not simply commitments. We should be people that do everything we can to protect marriage. And the question we should be asking is not, can I get divorced or do I have grounds for divorce? But rather, is there any way to save this marriage? Now, it's really quiet in here, and I know that some are already shrinking back because statistics would say that 50% in this room um, have experienced the pain of divorce. And I want you to truly hear my heart today. Neither Jesus nor I are condemning you. There are certainly reasons for divorce. Here in this text, Jesus gives one of those reasons. 
Some of you, you have had abusive relationships, unfaithfulness. There are reasons for divorce. The point is simply this. Divorce should never be preferred. It should never be celebrated. It should never be called good. That is not God's original intent for marriage. It is only to be a last resort. And marriages should look different for those that are in the kingdom of God. The next area of our life that Jesus addressed is, addresses is trustworthiness. The fact that his followers should be trustworthy. Again, you have heard it said that people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Jesus said, but I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. What does Jesus mean by that? I mean, we don't really do that. Like, no one swears by Jerusalem today. What's Jesus talking about? Again, there's cultural context that must be understood. In the times of Jesus, an oath or a vow helped a person remain faithful to their commitments. Some in the time of Jesus believed that only in times in which you invoked the name of the Lord were those oaths or commitments binding. If a person really wasn't that serious, they would swear by something less sacred than the Lord, by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. But Jesus, again, goes to the heart of the matter. His followers were not to swear by anything at all. Now, Jesus isn't talking specifically about profanity or cursing, but rather invoking anything that guarantees the truth of what you're saying. Meaning this, Jesus' followers should be people of such integrity, such character, and such truthfulness that whatever they say is absolutely believable and dependable. It's why Jesus said all you need is to simply say yes or no, and anything beyond that comes from the evil one. People in our community, people in our city, people in the world should know that when a Christian says they're going to do something, they will do it. People should look at us as followers of Jesus and go, when we say we're going to follow through, we will. That when we'll be there, we'll be there. Imagine that. Imagine how the world would change if simply Jesus' followers let their yes be yes and their no be no. Jesus is calling us to be trustworthy. Here's the last one that I'm going to cover today. It's retaliation. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Just like today in the times of the Old Testament and times of Jesus, there were laws that required justice. It was the great equalizer, checks and balances for society. However, in the times of Jesus, these laws were being abused to promote personal vengeance and retaliation. Jesus points to the motivation of his followers when his disciples, when Jesus follows you and I, when we are wronged, we are not to have the first thought of retribution or vengeance. Well, wait a second, you may say. Are you telling me, Pastor Allen, that Christians are supposed to be doormats? We're just supposed to let people walk over us? No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's a message for another day. But I will ask you this question. Who is our example? Who are we following? Who are we striving to be like Jesus? Well, recognizing that, that we are to be like Jesus as his followers, let me remind you of what Peter wrote in his first letter. He wrote, when they hurled their insults at him, speaking of Jesus, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Bottom line, Jesus practiced what he preached. You see, at some point, somebody has to break the cycle of vengeance. If it's always, well, they did this to me, and I'm going to do that to them, and then they do it to me, and it's just it's an ongoing cycle. Jesus' followers, Jesus is saying, no, my people should be the people that break the cycle. We should be the ones that finally say, enough is enough. The last one that Jesus deals with is loving our enemies. In a couple weeks, Pastor Elizabeth is going to tackle that one. But let me end with this final verse. Jesus goes through these six statements. He dresses anger, lust, marriage, retaliation, dealing with enemies, being trustworthy. And then he makes this one power. He holds up. You want to be righteous? This is righteousness. And then he says this. He says, okay, you heard all that. Now be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Thanks, Jesus. That's what I'd be like, okay, really? Well, why? Obviously, we think of perfect as blameless, faultless, never making a mistake. Not true, okay? There's no way. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned, fallen short, okay? So Jesus isn't talking about being blameless, faultless, never making a mistake. In the Greek, this word actually means whole, being complete, being spiritually mature. Jesus is saying, You want to grow in your maturity? You want to be complete? You want to have a whole life? Address these issues in the heart. He's saying the public performance, yeah, that's the easy part. I'm more concerned about the private piety in your heart. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As I prepared for this message and even was thinking about how to close it, I'll be honest, I, I, I wasn't planning on going where we're going to go, but in the 830 service, um, as we were worshiping, I really felt the Holy Spirit say that he wanted to work on marriages today. I'm going to ask you, I know that that doesn't cover, we have single people here, we have widows here, um, there are those that are divorced and haven't been remarried. But if your spouse is here today, I want you to grab their hand. Our marriages should look different than the world. And I know, I have no doubt that there are some marriages here today, it's hard for you to even hold your spouse's hand right now. Because there are some men here that are ready and you're saying to yourself, I'm done. There are some wives here today that are saying, I'm done. And the truth is, it's areas like anger. There's anger in your marriage. There has been lust in your marriage. It may not have been adultery, but lust is breaking your marriage. There is a nonstop cycle of retaliation in your marriage, and you're done. Some, it's a matter of trustworthiness, and you're done. There are biblical reasons for divorce but God always wants us to seek him and pray for restoration 
And maybe for some today, you never thought of your marriage as being a covenant. And I want you to ask yourself, is it simply a commitment? Am I disappointed because this person hasn't lived up to my expectation? And I just haven't viewed this marriage as a covenant. And I want to pray today that the Spirit of God would do a miraculous work in your marriage. Heavenly Father, marriage is not easy. (laughs) And it's no accident that you held up marriage as the relationship that should model you and the church. We are your bride. And if we're really honest, we are unfaithful to you at times. We don't live up to our word. We sin against you. But yet you show us grace. And you sent your son Jesus to die and made a covenant for us. So Lord, I pray over marriages, every marriage here today. Lord, those that have been married 50 years and more. (laughs) Those that whose marriage is going great. I thank you. I thank you for the example they are to the church. Lord, I know that the enemy would still love to destroy that. Would you protect it? But Lord, I also pray for those marriages today that are on the brink of divorce. Lord, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know the situations. There are some that are probably justifiable, but God, Holy Spirit, would you work in their heart? I pray that their marriage would be a testimony of your healing power. That, Lord, we would have marriages that are different than the world. That the world and culture would say, how are you doing it? And we could point them to Jesus. Lord, I pray against shame today for those that have been carrying that because they've been divorced. There are are those here today that it wasn't their fault. Lord, pick that shame up off of them. I pray for the children here today, Lord, the young adults that are here that are still carrying baggage because mom and dad were divorced at a young age. God, I ask that you would heal their heart. Give them hope today. I pray for the widows today that are here that are missing their spouse. Be their source. Be their need. We need you, Heavenly Father. Amen. Before you go, I don't say this too often, but... I. Maybe I should. If you need help in your marriage, Christian Counseling Collaborative is a part of ACAC. I believe there's over 100 counselors in the Pittsburgh area. Get help before you give up. Men, if I could talk to you, don't let your pride stand in the way of getting help. Go with your spouse to counseling. Go yourself. Get the help you need and let Jesus do the restoration that's needed. God bless you. Amen.